And so if you have your Bibles, meet me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And so God always does things that confound human wisdom. If you read Scripture from cover to cover, you would see that God is constantly confounding human wisdom. Just to give a couple of examples, if you think about the Israelites in the book of Joshua, as they were about to enter into the promised land, where they had to go through Jericho, and there was a great wall, and you guys remember the battle plan of entering the city of Jericho. God commanded them to silently walk around the city for six days. And then on the seventh day, they were to walk around the city multiple times and then shout. And God would make the walls fall. Or even think about how God used Gideon and 300 soldiers to defeat an entire nation and deliver Israel. You see, no one would ever come up with these types of plans. And if someone would, no one would conclude that those are great ideas. Every time, they would be like, that is foolish. That's crazy. That's madness. That's exactly what God thought. This was not exactly what God thought. In fact, this was God's idea and God's plan. And when they did it, when the Israelites obeyed, and when Gideon obeyed, the wall came falling down, and Gideon and his soldiers defeated the Midianites. You see, these plans sound foolish, but not but they're not because God planned it and God willed it and it's according to his wisdom. You see, God always confounds human wisdom. His thoughts and his ways are infinitely higher than ours. You see, God always does things in such a way that he and he alone will get the glory. And we'll see another example in this very passage where God's wisdom of the cross and his wisdom of election will confound human wisdom. And so before we get into the text, let me give a little bit of context about 1 Corinthians. You see, um, the city of Corinth, it is located in modern-day Greece. And the Apostle Paul, he traveled there in his second missionary journey, and he was there for about a year and a half. And if you want to know more about his time there, you can read Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 18. And so Paul, he is writing this letter with a twofold purpose. He writes to correct the church in Corinth of their sin, but also to respond to their concerns. You see, in chapter one, the apostle Paul, he greets them and gives thanks to God for them. And then he exhorts them to be unified because there was division in the church. And then he talks about how Christ has sent him to preach the gospel. Which brings us to our passage this morning. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For the word of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. 
For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You may be seated. And so our big idea this morning is this, that the wisdom of God confounds worldly wisdom and leads us to boast in the Lord. The wisdom of God confounds worldly wisdom and leads us to boast in the Lord. And so I have two points from this passage. Our first point that we will see, God's wisdom of the cross. And then we will see God's wisdom of election. And so God's wisdom of the cross and God's wisdom of election. Look at verse 18, where it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. And so Paul starts out the gate and he talks about the word of the cross, which is a message. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ came and died for our sins on the cross, that he was buried and raised from the grave on the third day. And Christ has sent Paul to preach this message that sinners may hear it, believe it, and be saved. And as you see, he says that it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. You see, the gospel is the great divider. It splits hearers into two groups, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And this separation hangs on how one perceives and responds to the gospel. You see, it's like the famous Laurel or Yanny sound clip that swept the internet. You see, you would play this clip and you'd either hear Laurel, Laurel, or you'd hear Yanny, Yanny. You see, this one clip, and yet people heard two different words. They had two different perceptions of what was said. Now, the thing is, if you thought you heard Laurel, you spot on. <laughs> just playing, just playing. But here, what we see is that the gospel really is the great divider. But it's not a trivial matter like a sound clip. But rather, it is of eternal significance. You see, life and death hinges on how one responds to the gospel. And one's perception reveals the state of their souls. Paul says that the, for the first group that it is foolishness to those who are perishing. You see, the Greek word for foolishness is moria, from where we get the word moron. You see, this group, they would hear the gospel and conclude that it is stupid. 
It is bonkers. And those who believe it and preach it are idiots. And look what Paul says. He says that they are perishing. They are spiritually dead. And on a path to eternal judgment as they spurn the gospel. Because salvation is only found in Jesus. Yet this group, they don't believe it. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. In fact, they reject the gospel. And many of us, we know people who are in this group. Family members, friends, neighbors. And if we're honest, we know that it breaks our hearts to know that they perceive the gospel to be foolish. But beloved, what are we to do? I would say that I would encourage us that we persistently pray that God would save them. You see, like them, we too were once spiritually dead. But God has saved us by his grace. And he can do the very same thing to them. You see, beloved, a hard heart is not too hard for God. So may we pray. May we preach the gospel. May we love them. And may we pray for the Lord to lead more people to preach the gospel and that they will respond with faith and repentance. And so Paul says that that's the first group, but there's a second group where he says, but, to, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. The Apostle Paul includes himself with the second group who perceives the gospel as it truly is. The power of God to save believers. It is the power of God to rescue sinners from condemnation because Christ has atoned for our sins on the cross. You see, through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death. And all who trust in him are no longer under wrath, but we are saved and forgiven. Paul says that it is the power of God. It sounds very similar to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew, first to the Jew, and then to the Greek. You see, Paul says that we who believe, we are being saved. So what does Paul mean when he says we are being saved? I thought we have been saved. What is Paul getting at? Well, the fact is, yes, we have been saved. You see, in Scripture, salvation is described in three tenses. Past, present, and future. And all are equally true. You see, past tense, we have been saved by the gospel. Think about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. In the present tense, it says that we are being saved by the gospel, as we see here in this verse. And in future tense, we will be saved, as Bryce read from the scriptural assurance of pardon in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. You see, all of this is through believing the gospel. Beloved, we never graduate from the gospel, so therefore, may we hold fast to the gospel. Look at verses 19 and 20. We're, uh, lost my place. Look at verse 19 and 20 where Paul says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the wisdom, the world's wisdom, foolish? And here Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, as God pronounces judgment on human wisdom, or the wisdom of this age. You see, in context, God judged Israel as they relied on worldly wisdom. 
as they merely gave lip service of honor to God. They relied on human and earthly wisdom as they sought to form an alliance with Egypt in order to be rescued from Babylon. You see, in the context, God is opposing human wisdom. And in here, what Paul is saying is that God, too, once again, is that he's in direct opposition and opposing human and earthly wisdom. Now, the thing is, God is not opposed to wisdom in and of itself. In fact, he wants us to be wise. Proverbs makes known that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. The Apostle James in James chapter 1, he exhorts us that if we lack wisdom, that we are to pray for it. But God, he opposes worldly wisdom. Wisdom according to this evil age. Wisdom that is self-centered and self-exalting. Wisdom that is driven by lust, pride, and greed. You see, this wisdom, it is demonic. And it entered the world when sin entered into the world. And what we see is that God, he has promised that he will destroy this type of wisdom. Which leads Paul to ask four rhetorical questions. He says, where's the one who is wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? And hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? And so Paul, he asks, where, is the, where are those with worldly wisdom? Where's the, the scribe, the teacher of the law? Where are the public philosophers who are only wise according to this age? but ignorant according to the age to come. And then he says, hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? You see, God has turned worldly wisdom on its head to where it is not wisdom, but rather it's foolish. It doesn't profit, but rather it is vain. You see, this worldly wisdom is folly because one cannot know God through it, which is where he gets at in verse 21. It says, for since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. You see, God ordained to not be known through worldly wisdom. No amount of worldly wisdom could, could to where one could learn them way themselves to where they result in them knowing God. You see, God will not be known through human wisdom, but through divine revelation. You see, he has generally revealed himself through creation, and he has specifically revealed himself through Scripture. And it says that it was God's delight to save people as they believe the gospel that is preached. This is how we know God. John chapter 1, verse 18 makes known that no one has ever seen God. The only Son of God who is at the right hand of God, he has made him known. You see, the only way that we know God is through his son, Jesus Christ. It is through believing in him. It is by which that we are saved. And it says that it pleased him to save those who believe. Now, this believing, it is more than an intellectual acknowledgement of the truth. It is not less than that, but it's certainly more than that. But rather, it's also committing oneself to trust in, depend on, and follow Jesus. You see, to know God, we don't need to read Plato. We don't need to read Voltaire. We don't need worldly wisdom. We only need to believe in Jesus. And God has rigged it this way so that he alone can get the glory. And beloved, did you see how people are saved? 
It says that God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. You see, through the preaching of the gospel, God saves people. And beloved, what this should do, this should comfort us, encourage us, and liberate us. It should liberate us from the attempt of trying to be super creative. You see, we don't need to think outside the box. We just need to faithfully preach the gospel. It should encourage us. It should comfort us to faithfully and simply and clearly preach the gospel to our neighbors, our coworkers, and our friends. And trust that that and know that that is what God will use to save his people. And members, if you need help in knowing how to share the gospel, I would encourage you to talk to other members. Ask other members and your elders to help you in this, that we may equip you so that you can faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. Where it says, For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. You see, Paul explains that, Paul explains how the nations respond to the gospel. He says, unbelieving Jews, they ask for signs. They are persistently demanding for miraculous signs to where faith is unnecessary. And he says that unbelieving Gentiles, they desire wisdom. You see, worldly wisdom and impressive speech, it was prevalent in Corinth. They wanted to be wowed by one's speech, which would only result in the praise of man. And though these are the things that they desire, look what Paul says. He says in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. He says that we resist their demands and we faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ was crucified on the cross, bearing our sin, dying and three days resurrecting from the grave. And that he gives eternal life to all who trust in him. And this message, it is offensive. He says that it's a stumbling block to unbelieving Jews. It is outrageous for them to believe that the Christ would bear the curse of sin for his people. You see, they believe that the Christ would come to rule, not that he would come to die in order to save his people. And even today, the gospel is still offensive. You see, it's offensive to be told that one is a sinner, that one stands condemned before God, and that their only refuge is not themselves, not their works, but trusting in Jesus Christ. You see, this message is humbling because it confronts us in our sin and tells us that we ain't all that, but that we need saving. So it's offensive, but it's not only offensive. Some people, uh, it's not only offensive, the unbelieving Gentiles will perceive it as folly. You see, the idea of God sacrificing himself to die for the salvation of his people is ridiculous. You see, the people in Corinth, in their minds, no God will become man in order to die for humanity. You see, they couldn't wrap their minds around the humiliation of God for the salvation of his people. And though it sounds crazy, it is completely true. And even to this day, some still see that some still believe that this message is folly. Some would say that Christianity is a sham. That is a clutch for weak-minded people. I'm sure some of us may have heard similar things as we tried to share the gospel with some people. Now, beloved, 
when you hear those responses and those attacks. I would encourage us to not let their attacks lead us to anger, but may it lead us to pray for the Lord to open their eyes. And though some perceive it as a stumbling block and some perceive it as foolish, Paul would say, look at verse 24. He says, yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, you had unbelieving Jews thinking that it was a stumbling block. You had unbelieving Gentiles thinking that it was foolish. And you have those who are called Jews and Gentiles. They would see it as what it truly is. It is precious. You see, those who are called, they hear the gospel and they say that it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul would describe them as those who are called. They are called by God. This is the effectual call of God where he summons the elect, those who God has chosen to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. You see, as the gospel is proclaimed, God effectually woos them into a state of salvation. And the Holy Spirit does an internal work in the elect, causing them to be regenerated or born again to where he opens their eyes to behold Christ, quickens their mind to the reality that the gospel is true, and gives the gifts of faith and repentance. And they voluntarily respond to the gospel with faith and repentance. And some may wonder, well, where am I getting this at? Well, Romans chapter 8, verse 29 through 30 says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You see, God has effectually called us. And that is the reason why we are saved You see, we were spiritually dead before God called us and saved us. And yet God, in his grace and kindness and love towards us, he made us alive to where we properly respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. You see, dead people don't come alive on their own. Even as you think about John chapter 11, where Jesus raised up Lazarus. There's no way for Lazarus to raise himself, but Jesus Christ went and did that very work. By speaking, commanding for Lazarus to come out, and Lazarus came out of the tomb. Well, in the same way, God has done that for us spiritually. I know I've quoted it a number of times in the previous sermons, but Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says that, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. This is the work of the Spirit. If you read John chapter 3, he says that one must be born again before they see the kingdom of God. That one must be born of the water and the Spirit before they can enter the kingdom of God. So the Holy Spirit regenerates us. And then we respond with faith and repentance. You see, it is because we are called by God that we see the gospel as the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, it's not because we are better than. It's not because we are wiser than. It's not because of anything that we ourselves have done. It's not because someone shared the gospel in a particular way that just made it click. No, 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 no. In fact, it's because the Spirit of God illumined us. He regenerated us, caused us to be born again to trust in Jesus. You see, the only reason why we see it is the power of God and the wisdom of God 
is because God has chosen to be gracious towards us. Look at verse 24 and 25 again. It says, Yet those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Here again, we see God flipping worldly wisdom on its head. You see, what the world would deem foolish, the gospel is actually the wisdom of God. You see, the world would think that it's weak for God to become man, but it's not weak at all. It's actually the power of God. You see, if you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. I would implore you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. You see, I know that this message sounds crazy, that God became man, that he lived perfectly and died on the cross and resurrected from the grave and saves all who believe. But the thing is, it's true. And life and death hinges on it. I would encourage you to trust in Jesus and be saved. Any of our members are happy to talk more with you after service. You see, in this section, Paul, he goes in on worldly wisdom. And he does this because it is rampant in Corinth and the church became influenced by it. And beloved, if we're honest, the same thing can easily happen to us today if we're not careful. You see, we are constantly being bombarded with worldly wisdom through every medium of communication. As you see, the messages of this age... It is in direct contrast and opposition to the message of God and the message of the cross. You see, what does the world say versus what does the cross says? Well, the world says that you need the American dream, a spouse, wealth, and a great job. But the cross says that you need forgiveness. The world says that you are innately good and that your problems, your main problems are outside of you. But the cross says that you're not good and that your main problem is you and that you need saving. The world says that you decide what is true. The cross says that Jesus is the truth. The world says that all religions lead to God and they are right. The cross says that Jesus is the only way to God. The world says that you need to be on the right side of history. But the cross says that you need to be on the right side of eternity. You see, beloved, may we not listen to the messages of the world. Who are you listening to? Where are you getting wisdom? You see, true wisdom is not found in this age, but in the word, both the incarnate word being Jesus Christ and the inspired word, the Holy Scriptures. So may we constantly study God's word. May we get his word into us to where our worldview is informed by scripture and not the wisdom of this world. And so we see God's wisdom of the cross that is the power of God to save. And now we will see God's wisdom of election. Look at verse 26. We says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And so Paul, he focuses specifically on the Corinthians. He tells them to reflect on their own calling, 
And in this verse, Paul pretty much makes known that y'all shouldn't be impressed with yourselves. You see, most of y'all ain't all that in the bag of chips. You ain't the cream of the crop. You ain't the ones that everybody likes. You ain't the ones that everybody wants. And he says that those who were, God chose you in spite of that. You see, what Paul is getting at here is that his, God's wisdom of election is not like the world's wisdom. You see, God doesn't choose according to the world's standards. You see, how would the world elect people? Well, I would say it's like being the captain of a PE team, be a captain of a team in PE class, where you would want your team to be stacked. You want the best, the brightest, and the baddest in order for you to win. But the thing is, that's not how God does it. You see, God didn't choose anyone based on our own prominence. You see, the reality is none of us are great. His election confounds our expectations and worldly wisdom because he didn't choose the greats. Look who God chose. Look at chapter 1, verse 27 to 29, where it says, Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. You see, Paul makes known that God has elected those who are foolish, the weak, those who lack influence. That God has chosen what the world would consider to be nobodies in order to shame the wise, the strong, and to bring to nothing the things that are. And what he's getting at is that on the last day, all of the greats who boasted in themselves and refused to trust in Jesus, they will be put to shame because they didn't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is making known that, that God's choosing is not according to worldly wisdom. You see, God didn't elect us because we're awesome, but rather because he is gracious. You see, in Paul's mind, God's wisdom and election should humble us because God's choosing is not like our choosing. You see, the doctrine of election, it should produce humility, not pride. The thing is, if you're prideful in your understanding of election, or you look down on people who disagree, then I would exhort you to study it again and to study it with other people because it hasn't taken root yet in your heart because it should produce humility because we've been chosen by God, by his grace. It should lead us to marvel because God has chosen us should lead us to praise him. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 would say, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. You see, the doctrine of election, it shouldn't lead us to pride, but to praise. And verse 29 makes known why God did all of this. He says, so that no one may boast in his presence. You see, why did God do it? To exclude boasting. It says, so that. 
As Bryce said last week, when you see words like so that, you should circle that phrase because it tells us the very purpose of something. You see, God did this that no one may sing their own praises, but that we may sing his praises. You see, Paul reminds them of their calling, not for them to puff out their chests, but for them to bow their heads in humility. You see, saints, we have nothing to boast about in and of ourselves. You see, boasting in ourselves, it is futile, and if we're honest, it's a slap in God's face. Because we're boasting as if we really did something, as if we're really great. And the reality is, only God is great. You see, Christians, we shouldn't be boasting, but we should be the humblest people on the earth because we know that God has chosen us. We know that God has sustained us. We know that God has provided for us, that God has saved us. And we know that we have absolutely nothing to boast in. In fact, a good verse for us to memorize and to study and to meditate on would be 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, where it says, For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You see, we have no grounds for boasting at all. And I would encourage us as members of NBC, pray that we would be a humble people, that we won't boast in ourselves or our achievements or our knowledge or our degrees or anything like that. Finances, jobs, houses, these are very things that the world would tell you to boast in that we won't boast in any of those things, that we would boast in the Lord alone. You see, God has done it this way so that no one may boast in his presence. As my friend, Pastor Garrett Kell, would say, no one will strut into heaven. All will enter humbly. Look at verse 30 and 31. He says, it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let, no, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. You see, beloved, God is the sole reason that we have union with Christ, that we are in him. We did absolutely nothing. We made no contribution to our salvation except for the sins that needed to be atoned for. We don't boast in that. We're ashamed of that. We boast in the Lord. And Paul says that, that Christ personified wisdom from God for us, that he is the true wisdom from God for us. And what Paul, he begins to do is he illuminates the nature of this wisdom when he says our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He says uh, that Christ is our righteousness, that God has gifted us the righteousness of Christ, where we have a right standing before God and we are not condemned. He also says that Christ is our sanctification. This is positional holiness, that through union with Christ, we are set apart and purified. Because we have this position of holiness, we can progress in holiness, growing in conformity to the likeness of Jesus, being holy as God is holy by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit as he uses the word to sanctify us. But then he also says that we have redemption. Who are we were once enslaved to sin, but Jesus came and bought us back. 
He has redeemed us to where we are no longer slaves. Now we can resist sin and glorify God with our bodies by his grace. You see, what Paul is doing is he is upholding the diamond of the blessings of having union with Christ. And he is turning it and showing us the angles. So he says righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And these positions are to lead to practices. So we are growing in holiness, resisting sin, and seeking to be more and more like Jesus. And Paul says that God did all of this in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, the ultimate purpose is that we may boast in the Lord. Paul quotes Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, to make it abundantly clear that the people of God are to boast in the Lord alone. Because God has saved us in Christ. We boast in absolutely nothing but in him alone. If you read the book of Revelation, what you will see is that all who are in God's presence, all, who, all the saints won't be boasting in ourselves, won't be singing our praises, but we will say, worthy is the Lamb. We will boast in the Lord, the one who has saved us. So now, may we do that this day, all the way until we do it on that day, for all of eternity. May we boast in the Lord because salvation is of the Lord. So may we boast in him in this life. Boast in Christ. And the way we do it is we remember what Jesus has done. We remember what God has done, how God has chosen us and saved us. May that be on the forefront of our minds every day. May we wake up in the morning and think about that and meditate on it and dwell on that throughout the day. That alone will kill our pride. That will cause us to boast in him. So may we do it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, you have been so good to us in Christ that you would call us how we were once your enemies and you would reconcile us. You would send your son to save us. You would woo us. Your spirit would regenerate us and save us as we believe the gospel. God, we praise you. Lord, may we boast in no one else. May we not boast in ourselves. May we not follow the wisdom of this age and seek to boast in other things, but may our boast be in Christ alone. It is in him that we can come before you. It is through him that we're saved and we have a union with you. Oh, Lord, help us. May they be on the forefront of our minds day and night to the day where we're with you, boasting in his presence. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so we're going to sing our final hymn, which is what is Christ, our hope in life and death. As we saw in the passage that we are to boast in the Lord alone, and we see in this song that we are to hope in the Lord alone. And as we hope in him, we not only hope in him in this life, but we hope in him all the way to where our faith becomes sight. And we see him as he is, gathered around the throne, worshiping him. 
So may he be our boast and may he be our hope.